Hello, and welcome to Unbabbled, a podcast that navigates the world of special education, communication delays, and learning differences. We are your hosts, Stephanie Landis and Meredith Crummel, and we're certified speech-language pathologists who spend our days at the parish school in Houston, helping children find their voices and connect with the world around them. This episode is a bit different from our normal format. Instead of an interview, we're bringing you a recording from a live virtual Q&A on mental health and medication with Dr. Alan Kadic, hosted by the Parish School. Dr. Kadic is the President and Medical Director of Houston Clinical Trials, where he conducts clinical research and treats adults, adolescents, and children with psychiatric disorders. He has an extensive background in psychopharmacology and mental health disorders, including autism, major depressive disorder, schizophrenia, migraines, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, and anxiety disorder. Dr. Kadic and his research have been successfully published in reputable scientific journals and presented at scientific meetings. Throughout the episode, Dr. Kadic answers parent and professional questions, including how to tell if a medication is working, how long it takes to see changes, and gives more information on side effects parents may see with medications. Many questions asked are related specifically to children with speech, language, and sensory processing difficulties. In addition to answering questions, he also provides background information on many common medications, including those used to treat ADHD, and gives a variety of resources for parents seeking more information. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Amy Lerman, and my role is community outreach on behalf of the Parish School. We are eager to begin the Q&A with our special guest, Dr. Kadic, and we are so honored to have you join us this evening. Once we get started, please feel free to wave us down and we'll go ahead and ask you to unmute yourself to directly ask your question to Dr. Kadic. Of course, another option is to type your question into the chat and that way it can be read by either myself, Meredith Krimmel or Stephanie Landis. Okay, without further ado, I am so pleased to introduce Dr. Kadic. Dr. Kadic has an extensive background in psychopharmacology, autism, major depressive disorder, schizophrenia, migraines in children and adolescents, adolescent and adult attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and bipolar one depression. He served as medical director for numerous hospitals and treatment facilities, including Houston Clinical Trials, where he currently serves as president and medical director. Dr. Kadic and his research have been successfully published in reputable scientific journals and presented at scientific meetings. Thank you, Dr. Kadic, for being here this evening, and I'll let you take it away. Super. Well, thank you. Thank you very much uh, for uh, inviting me. It's a little unusual to, uh, to do this. Uh, in the past, I've always uh, been able to see my audience. What I thought I would do, uh, um, because I do tend to like to have these uh, be free-flowing, open-ended conversations, this medium may be a bit challenging, but what I'm going to do is start off just with a sort of a quick little uh, primer, in essence, of uh, uh, child psychopharmacology, some of the main uh, conditions that we treat, the medications that we use, and uh, then really after that, would like to open it up to, to questions and try and can answer as many questions as I can. So I think a good place uh, to start is with ADHD. And the reason I would start with ADHD is because it is the most common 
uh, psychiatric disorder that we see in children. Uh, most studies uh, tend to show about a 10% prevalence in the population as a whole. Some are a little higher, some are a little lower, but 10% in general of children have uh, ADHD or meet criteria for an ADHD diagnosis. And that also actually progresses into adulthood, though about 50% of folks grow out of their ADHD. And so by the time you get to adulthood, the prevalence rates tend to drop to into the four to 5% range. But ADHD, again, is the most common psychiatric disorder in children. And diving into the medications that are used to treat ADHD, uh, there are basically two uh, main categories. Uh, what I consider, and I think most professionals would consider the gold standard, uh, are the stimulant medications. And they're the gold standard uh, because they are, frankly, the, the most effective uh, medications. Uh, they're actually some of the most effective medications in medicine as a whole. They're uh, very, very effective. There are uh, a second category would be the non-stimulant medications. Um, I'll actually start with those first because there's fewer of them. Uh, the non-stimulants that are currently approved uh, by the FDA are, are three medications. Uh, one is a drug called Stratera, uh, and the other two are similar to each other in that they're old high blood pressure medications, uh, uh, one called Intunif, uh, or the generic is Guamfacine, uh, and the other Clonidine, or sorry, Catbay, and the generic being Clonidine. Uh, the, the reason the stimulants are the gold standard is, frankly, uh, the non-stimulants are less effective uh, than the stimulants as a whole. Uh, they do um, have a different side effect profile than the stimulants. So sometimes for some patients that can be uh, uh, preferred. But besides being less effective, they also uh, take time to work. So these are medications that you have to take for at least uh, several weeks before they really begin to kick in. And with Stratera, um, taking sometimes upwards of three to six weeks uh, to reach full effect. Uh, so um, if um, you know, your child uh, or yourself uh, is going to be taking a non-stimulant, you, you definitely uh, um, got to give it a chance uh, and don't expect an immediate uh, response or improvement in your symptoms. Um, now, moving to the stimulant category, um, there are, I believe at this point, uh, 30 different formulations of stimulants uh, that have been approved. Um, but uh, basically what you're looking at within the stimulant category are two main categories, one being Ritalin-based medications and the other being amphetamine-based medications. Um, and so some of the Ritalin-based medications that you might have heard of are things like uh, Concerta, uh, Focalin. Uh, there are some of the newer ones, uh, uh, Adhansia. Uh, there's actually the first ever approved uh, uh, a stimulant given at nighttime, uh, a drug by the name of Jornay PM uh, that is dosed uh, at eight or nine o'clock in the evening, but does not begin to release uh, medication until uh, about 10 hours later. So about uh, 6 a.m. the next morning. And all of these, uh, and then on the, sorry, on the amphetamine side, uh, you have Adderall, uh, which people are very familiar with, uh, at least the name, uh, and then uh, Vyvanse. Uh, there are a few other, those are the two uh, long-acting uh, amphetamine-based uh, medications. There are some short-acting ones uh, that you may have heard of, like a VKO. Uh, but uh, again, those are your two major categories. Studies have shown, and it's frankly been my clinical experience, uh, that all stimulants 
are equally effective. Um, the amphetamines are not better than Ritalin. There isn't a particular drug that is better for inattentive ADHD or, or hyperactive. They are all equally effective. Um, they all do also share the same side effects. The most common ones being decreased appetite and insomnia. Insomnia tends to improve, but unfortunately in children, decreased appetite tends to be a persistent and problematic uh, side effect. Uh, all stimulants uh, basically last three to four hours, and thus they are packaged into these long-acting forms, such as Vyvanse, a long-acting version of dextroamphetamine, to try and create a single-dose medication that can last uh, anywhere from eight hours, being the shortest of the long-actings. That would be Ritalin LA. Uh, Vyvanse, the dextroamphetamine-based medication I mentioned, can last uh, 12 to 13 hours. Some of the newer ones uh, claim to last even longer than that. Uh, um, there's a drug, Mydeus, which is a long-acting version of Adderall XR that may last up to 14, uh, uh, maybe even up to 16 hours. Uh, but really trying to, again, create a single-dose medication uh, so that uh, you know, children aren't having to line up at the nurse's office or for adults uh, that they're not in the middle of a meeting and their short-acting is worn off and, and and now they're without medication. So again, ease of administration and maintaining efficacy throughout the day. That's the ADHD category. There are some off-label uh, medications that uh, physicians will use uh, that can include uh, an antidepressant, Wellbutrin. Um, there are also um, some uh, pro-wakefulness drugs uh, that you may have heard of, like uh, ProVigil or New Vigil, uh, that have some data indicating, again, some efficacy in ADHD, uh, but again, less effective uh, than the, the stimulants. Uh, I will throw out one other category uh, in terms of some of the natural treatments, if you want to call them that, for ADHD. Uh, and there is data showing that omega-3 fatty acids have uh, some effect uh, in improving ADHD symptoms. Unfortunately, the problem really becomes as you're moving down from stimulants to non-stimulants, you're losing. And as you move down to omega-3 fatty acids, you're, you're really getting down to not very powerful effects at all. <clears throat> so that's ADHD uh, treatment in, in, in a nutshell. Uh, then I thought what I'd like to do is move on to another large category uh, that we see in uh, children and, and most definitely in adults, uh, uh, depression uh, and, and anxiety. And, and the reason I'm going to clump those uh, two together uh, is because uh, the treatments uh, are um, very similar uh, in uh, focusing on children, because I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist, uh, there are currently two approved uh, medications for the treatment of depression in kids, uh, and that is uh, Prozac uh, and Lexapro. Uh, those two belong to a class of drugs known as SSRIs, or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. That is believed to be one of their primary mechanisms of action. In childhood uh, anxiety disorders, uh, there are three drugs that are approved by the FDA, and that's specifically for uh, OCD. Uh, and those three drugs are Prozac, again, uh, Zoloft, uh, and Luvox, uh, again, all three being SSRIs, so sharing the same basic mechanism of action in uh, inhibiting the reuptake of serotonin uh, in the central nervous system. Now, uh, when you look at uh, adult uh, depression and adult uh, anxiety disorders, uh, there's a much larger uh, group of these uh, SSRI medications. 
Uh, so for instance, uh, things like Paxil that you may have heard of, um, newer ones like Trintelix uh, and Vibrid. Uh, so again, uh, but mostly uh, all of those have, again, this common mechanism of action. One group of medications with a slightly different uh, mechanism, which are known as SNRI, serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, again, approved for either the treatment of depression or various uh, and or various anxiety disorders. Um, and those uh, drugs would include uh, uh, medications such as Cymbalta, Effexor, uh, Pristique. Now, uh, none of those uh, have ever been approved in children. Um, some of them have done uh, studies. Um, I, I was involved in um, a number of those studies. Uh, so for instance, using Cymbalta as an example, Cymbalta uh, uh, was unfortunately not able to separate from placebo uh, in an adolescent depression trial. Uh, but what was interesting about that trial uh, was uh, that there was a comparator drug. So basically you had Cymbalta, Prozac, and placebo. And Prozac, which I mentioned previously uh, as having been FDA approved, actually failed uh, to separate from placebo in the Cymbalta, Prozac, placebo study. Uh, so it, it can be difficult uh, to demonstrate efficacy uh, for these medications in children. And uh, people uh, argue and, and uh, uh, scratch their heads over why that is. And, and there's all sorts of theories. But again, so there's a very limited number of medications that are approved uh, by the FDA. It doesn't mean that physicians uh, don't use other uh, off-label uh, medications uh, in children. Um, and that's not unreasonable, uh, particularly if one has uh, exhausted uh, the currently uh, approved uh, therapies. Um, so that's uh, depression uh, and anxiety uh, disorders, again, in, in a nutshell. And then uh, the, the last major group, uh, so not going to focus on uh, psychotic disorders or schizophrenia this evening, uh, but more looking at, again, conditions that uh, one might encounter in children. So the last major uh, sort of uh, grouping, uh, and it's not so much that these disorders uh, have uh, similarities to each other, but the similarity being the medications that are used to treat them. And that would be bipolar disorder and then uh, autism spectrum uh, or autism disorders. Uh, and uh, basically uh, the common medications that are used uh, to treat those two conditions are uh, what are commonly uh, referred to as um, atypical antipsychotics uh, or sometimes known uh, as uh, mood stabilizing medications. And so in uh, bipolar disorder in children, excuse me, um, there's a number of different medications such as uh, Zyprexa, uh, Risperdal, Seroquel, Abilify, uh, and, and others that have been approved. Uh, and uh, several of those medications, again, such as Risperdal, Zyprexa, uh, and Abilify uh, have been approved for the treatment of symptoms associated with autism. All of those uh, medications, again, share a similar um, uh, mechanism of action, uh, namely uh, blocking uh, dopamine uh, uh, receptors uh, in the central nervous system. Um, <clears throat> so that is their commonly shared uh, mechanism of action. Um, and, you know, with, with that, um, I thought I'd go ahead and start to take some questions um, and uh, try and uh, drill down to more specifics as people ask questions.
Thank you so much, Dr. Cadden. Yes, we do have uh, one question that was sent in ahead of time. Thank you very much. And the question is, are stimulants a safe way to treat six-year-olds for ADHD? What if their behavior becomes outrageous? Do you quit taking the stimulant or do their bodies need time to adjust to the medication? So uh, uh, is, is that the question? Yeah, so st stimulants are a reasonable approach in treating uh, uh, six-year-olds and uh, most, uh, well, actually all of the stimulants are approved uh, six and above. Um, and so there is uh, data from studies indicating efficacy in, in children that young. Uh, and, and just so you know, uh, the FDA actually has um, uh, requested and, and a number of studies are being done uh, by various pharma companies in uh, children four and five years of age. Um, and uh, that data will be coming out over the next uh, few years. Um, so stimulants again are approved, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, they are the gold standard. Um, in terms of altering a child's behavior uh, in a negative manner, um, that can occur. Uh, you can see uh, children become more moody, uh, irritable, uh, weepy, uh, and that can occur sometimes on the medication. And by on the medication, uh, I mean the duration of the drug. So let's just say a child is on an eight-hour long-acting stimulant. You could see it potentially during those eight hours. More commonly, what one tends to see is that that kind of moodiness or irritability will occur as the medication is wearing off, uh, sometimes known as a rebound where the child actually uh, is, again, more moody, irritable, possibly more hyper, uh, and that typically wanes after um, 30, 60, maybe 90 minutes. Uh, is it reasonable to, to hang in there? Uh, it, it is, uh, because uh, clinically what one sees and what studies show is you'll tend to get the most side effects in the first week, uh, and they will tend to peak, and they do tend to abate over time. Uh, except for the one that I mentioned at the start, uh, appetite suppression. Unfortunately, appetite suppression tends to simply uh, be a persistent side effect uh, in, in, uh, in children. Um, I can't remember all the details of the question, but one of, one of the things I'll say also, one of the nice things about stimulants is that they do give you quick answers. Uh, and so literally you will be able to tell within a day or two, uh, depending on the dose that's chosen to maybe a week, as one is possibly increasing the dose um, uh, if it is an effective medication. But the other nice thing about it uh, is um, if it's not effective uh, or is causing problematic side effects, if you don't give a stimulant the next day, it's gone. Uh, so you can literally be in and out of a trial of a medication within a day two or three. Uh, and so uh, unlike some other medications where, you know, if you've taken it for a week and you stop it, it's going to take a week or so to get out of your system. That is simply not true with stimulants. Uh, that's one of their advantages possibly, but it's also one of their disadvantages because if you don't take it the next day, it doesn't work obviously. Uh, but so, so sometimes uh, uh, I'll describe them to families as, you know, giving us a quick answer, yay or nay. And if it's yay, we hang on to it. If it's nay, you can stop it and move on. And one of the things I'll just go back to sort of my summary on ADHD that I do want to mention. Uh, I said that all of the stimulants are equally affected. They do all share the same side effects. It's not uncommon also for patients to try multiple stimulants. And so if your child did not do well on 
say focalin and it had some problematic side effects, it's not unreasonable to try another stimulant because though they share the same side effects, you may not get the same side effects. And you may find, and actually my experience is that many patients will choose their final stimulant based on uh, not efficacy, not that that was better, worked better than this one, but on side effects. I, I was in a better mood on that one, or I slept better on this one, I had a better appetite. Uh, those are often the, the factors that drive which medication a person ends up, ends up taking over the long term. And that's a really helpful answer because what you ended up doing was answering quite a bit of the second part of this person's question, which was, is there a way to know which medication will work best for your child besides trial and error? And you really just spoke to that a lot. Yeah, unfortunately, it really is trial and error. And it's a matter of picking a starting point. Um, as I said, again, there isn't one drug that's better for inattention or hyperactivity. Um, different doctors have different, uh, frankly, practice habits, and they're all reasonable. Uh, uh, I, I tend to start younger children on Ritalin-based medications. Ritalin is a slightly less potent stimulant than the amphetamines. And you know, so I'm rationalizing that maybe they'll tolerate it better. Uh, but I do have many kids, young kids on amphetamine based medication. So it's really a matter of picking your starting point uh, and, and, you know, starting and seeing how it goes. The, the good news is, again, barring side effects, these are very effective medications and many kids will respond well to whichever medication they're placed on first and rapidly so. Wonderful. Next question, would you ever prescribe a mood stabilizer with a stimulant or non-stimulant? So, um, yeah, what, what you're touching on there is, is uh, you know, what sometimes is referred to as a polypharmacy. And, and polypharmacy uh, uh, really occurs generally because um, these conditions run together. So they are comorbid. So, for instance, using ADHD, ADHD commonly runs with anxiety disorders. It can commonly run with depression. Uh, it can commonly run with bipolar disorder. And so it's not uncommon to have to use two different medications to, in essence, treat two different conditions. So a stimulant or a non-stimulant for the ADHD, and then a mood stabilizing medication possibly for bipolar disorder or for a child who's on the autism spectrum to manage some other you know, mood symptoms or behavioral issues that the stimulant simply you know, can't address because its main target, frankly, is, is ADHD symptomatology. It may be worth going back and re-exploring medications. I've seen many times where patients respond to something, maybe lose mm -hmm. their response, and you go back to it again at some later date. And mm -hmm. it, well, again, and the, mm -hmm. the other thing that I would just say, you know, you mentioned at the end that he hadn't been on stimulants in a long time. Mm -hmm. um, it may be worth reconsidering that. Uh, mm -hmm. I've seen many times where young children, um, mm -hmm. you know, five, six years of age, mm -hmm don't tolerate the stimulants as well. Three, four years later, mm -hmm. they respond much, much better. Uh, and oh, I think okay. Sort okay. of, you know, uh, your brain is developing, things are mm -hmm. kind of coming online, if you mm -hmm. want to think that way. And, and again, a child may do well on a medication at a later date that they did not do well oh, on. Oh, okay. And as I said earlier, mm -hmm. one of the nice things about stimulants, they give you quick mm -hmm. answers. Uh, you will know pretty quickly, you know, is mm -hmm. this is a good move or, uh, or, or not. 
Another question that we've got here is how often do you recommend taking your child off medication for a trial period? This to determine if they can achieve success off medication. Yeah, uh, it's a good, great question. Let's break it down in terms of some of the, the diagnoses that I've gone over. So uh, ADHD, as I said earlier, does get better as you get older. And 50% of children who meet criteria in childhood do not by the time they get to adulthood. It's not unreasonable, uh, in my opinion, uh, to do trials off of medications. Mm for ADHD potentially. And what one is looking for is, you know, as you come off of the medication, do the symptoms uh, manifest themselves again, uh, whether it be behaviorally, academically, a combination of the both. Um, and if, if they do, uh, well, then, okay. Um, it's not the time to stop the medications. Uh, one, one goes back on them. Um, now, it gets a little more tricky uh, if you start to look at things like depression and anxiety. Uh, anxiety disorders, uh, unfortunately, do tend to be chronic. Uh, they do wax and they wane, but they don't generally go away. Uh, and so um, many patients, once they respond to, uh, let's just use Prozac as an example, uh, they may take it for, for many years. Uh, again, not unreasonable as a child, child is aging to consider uh, possibly coming off of the medication. What I tend to do with my patients is uh, I, I let the child know that they're in the driver's seat because uh, they have to be comfortable to come off the medication. And if they want to do so, then we gradually taper down over a period of uh, several months, possibly. And what we're looking at as we're coming down on the medication is, again, does the anxiety recur? Uh, if so, is it less severe? Can you treat it with therapy or is it you know, again, bad. Do we need to go back on medications? Again, not unreasonable. Depression, uh, unfortunately, there just isn't really good uh, systematic data in terms of what to do there. In adults, uh, the recommendations for a first episode are to treat for at least a year. Uh, for recurrent episodes of depression, to treat for longer periods. Uh, in kids, we, again, just really don't have good data. So what I find myself doing is taking the adult uh, paradigm and applying it to kids. And so, again, I would generally recommend treating a child with depression for at least a year uh, if one achieves a response on a medication. And then, again, uh, you know, possibly coming off and seeing how it goes. Uh, but, you know, cautiously monitoring and if symptoms recur, resuming medication. For conditions like bipolar disorder and, and again, uh, the autism spectrum uh, disorder, uh, you know, those, those symptoms tend to be more persistent. And, and unfortunately, you're looking at probably uh, more chronic and longer term treatment of medications. Um, you know, it's not unreasonable, possibly, as children are developing, if, say, you know, some of their outbursts, as we were talking a minute ago, are subsiding. Do they need? you know, as many medications or that high of a dose. But, you know, again, I think it really needs to be done uh, systematically uh, with a, a plan of how to taper off the medications. With the stimulants, you just stop those. But with the others, systematically, gradually tapering and carefully observing for, you know, any recurrence. Uh, and if so, having a plan, uh, you know, to resume medication or what to do next. Thank you. Another parent uh, was curious to know whether there are particular behaviors that Abilify is more effective at treating than Risperidone and whether Abilify can be given in addition to Risperidone. 
It can. Uh, that's not the preferred modality. Uh, it's really, uh, you know, one, one tries to stay away from combinations of uh, atypical uh, antipsychotics if possible. And I mean, that being said, I do have a small subset of patients where that just seems to be what works best for them. Uh, you know, your concern with multiple agents of that sort is frankly uh, that you're uh, uh, stacking the deck in essence from a side effect standpoint. Um, so, but they can be used together now, uh, you know, is one again, better than another for certain, uh, symptoms. Uh, no, that just, you know, uh, I mean, I think doctors at times, uh, have, uh, sort of, um, uh, ideas in their head about what may you know, work a little better for this or that based on their own experience. Uh, but is there, uh, uh, research data that clearly indicates, uh, that this drug is better for depressive symptoms or, uh, anxiety. No, there just simply isn't. And when you look at it, I mean, if you bother to read this, these studies uh, that the FDA uh, approves these drugs on, what they tend to show uh, is that these drugs are effective uh, across the spectrum of symptoms. Okay. So, you know, whatever the depression symptoms are for an antidepressant, whatever the ADHD symptoms are again, so inattentive and hyperactive symptoms, these drugs work equally well across the, the spectrum of that disorder symptoms. At what point or age do you determine when you should check for ADHD or anxiety disorders for a child that is on the spectrum? Oh gosh, uh, yeah, that's a that's a tough one. I, I don't know that there's a particular age uh, uh, that one is looking at. It, it really, uh, it. it it tends to either sort of manifest itself or it doesn't really. And, and uh, uh, um, you know, you, you, it's unlikely that you're going to be looking at a lot of that prior to the age of, say, four or five. Uh, as a child is progressing into school, um, ADHD symptoms, uh, uh, it's not that they become more prevalent or more, uh, they become more problematic in essence, not that they're getting worse, but because of the demands that are being placed on the child. Uh, one can also see anxiety symptoms begin to develop in children as they get into either you know, sort of pre, uh, pre-teen years or early adolescence. Um, though anxiety symptoms can also manifest themselves in young children, four or five, six years of age. So it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a hard question to answer in terms of when to look for, at what age to, to look for these uh, symptoms emerging. Okay, thank you. Uh, the next question says, would you recommend trying a different extended release stimulant if your child is on one but still needs booster doses throughout the day? Increasing the extended release morning dose caused irritability. Yeah, so, so, um, so a couple of things. Uh, um, yes, I think it's reasonable to look at other extended release uh, medications. Um, you know, the, there are some of the newer ones, for instance, uh, uh, I'm not sure if your child is on a Ritalin-based one, but at, at Hanzia, which is a new uh, Ritalin-based uh, stimulant that possibly can last up to 14 hours. Uh, from a, a single dose uh, and may not require as, as you know extra or booster doses later in the day. Um, but there is also a subset of children who um, simply seem to um, go through uh, long-acting stimulants faster than one would expect uh, and where you are having to use uh, booster doses. But 
it's absolutely reasonable to, to try and switch uh, to other long acting stimulants and see if you can get a, a better fit because it, it can occur. And again, as I said earlier, these give you quick answers. You will literally know within a few days to a week or two if you've made the right decision. Hmm. How do stimulants typically affect someone with ADHD that also has high-functioning autism and acute hearing sensitivity and high anxiety? Um, that's, that's a good question. Uh, uh, well, let, me, let me take a first pass at it this way. Um, when you look at one of the challenges in treating patients with autism is that they present with a number of other symptoms, uh, ADHD type symptoms, uh, anxiety symptoms, mood symptoms. Um, but when you look at treatment uh, with medications and when you look at what studies have shown, uh, their response to those treatments is often not as robust uh, as one sees in the the original uh, condition. So let me give you an example. Trying to treat ADHD in a patient with autism, um, many studies, uh, well, let me back up. If you look at ADHD treatment with stimulants, uh, and most studies will show 80 to 90% efficacy, very powerful efficacy. In patients with autism, the uh, response rates drop to 30 to 50%. Okay, so why is that? Well, in my opinion, it's because ADHD and autism is different uh, than ADHD without autism. Uh, and so it gets more complicated. Uh, and then, you know, you, you touched on uh, the other sorts of issues in terms of uh, hypersensitivity to sounds and uh, anxiety. Um, so, you know, that's where you then end up looking at combination of, of medication treatments but also need to realize that the responses that you're going to get from these treatments may not be as robust as one would like. Another example being in patients on the autism spectrum, they present with OCD-like symptoms. And I stress the like because those studies have shown that Prozac, which is approved in OCD, are effective it's not going to be as effective, unfortunately, as in a patient who just has OCD without the autism spectrum. And, and not to try and dissuade you, or, or, or it, it's, again, reasonable to try, uh, and, and you may see response. And sometimes you may see really robust response, but you also have to prepare yourself for, you know, how much has this helped? What are the side effects? Is it worth holding on to this medication? You know, has it provided enough benefit uh, to... to, to a warrant its ongoing use. We have one here that says, do you believe that genetic testing is an effective way to find the best starting point? I'm smiling because I, I, I really wish it was. Um, so here's, here's my take on that. Okay. Uh, uh, the mom uh, earlier mentioned Genomind. Uh, there's a number of companies, GeneSight. Uh, and... Um, um, the problem with those um, is that the, the science uh, has gotten ahead of the clinical studies. And so these, um, these gene tests, basically what they're looking at are what are called cytochrome P450 enzymes. So these are enzymes in your liver that metabolize medications. And we do know uh, which drugs go through which enzyme systems. 
these gene tests show uh, on these various enzymes, are you a normal metabolizer, a slow metabolizer, a fast metabolizer? And thus one can figure out how that might affect the blood level of a medication that goes through that pathway. They then also look at a number of the neurotransmitter transporter genes. And what is your profile on those various genes? Now here's the leap. They then try to make uh, um, uh, guesses as to what your profile on that neurotransmitter transporter gene might mean in terms of your response to a medication and then combine it with the enzyme data and then create these algorithms that this might be a better medication that might be a better medication uh, gene site did uh, depression trials in adults and they did show that if you picked the better drug you had a two times higher response rate than if you picked the not so good drug that was in one of their studies. In another study, they failed to show that that was true. So the problem here is we're trying to get towards personalized medicine, but we're not there yet. More studies need to be done to understand you know, how to use these tests and can they guide doctors. The way I tend to use them is in patients who've had strange side effects and problematic responses to medications or who've been on multiple medications and seem to repeatedly fail and don't respond to those medications in the hopes that, you know, might this test be able to guide my choices, narrow my choices uh, towards better ones. But, um, you know, again, I, I think it's an interesting area. Uh, I hope it, it leads to better sort of uh, um, decision trees for us, but, uh, but it's still a little early uh, to be able to say that we're there. Very good. Okay. Here's another one. Do you ever recommend non-medical interventions before starting medication? If so, what do you frequently recommend? So um, again, in, in, in ADHD, uh, in all honesty, no, I, I don't typically, there are some, uh, I think the FDA recently approved a, um, uh, a computer game, uh, basically, uh, that one can uh, use to treat ADHD. Uh, there is neurofeedback uh, and studies have shown, uh, you know, some efficacy in treating ADHD symptoms. Um, but it's not something that I'm typically recommending as uh, in lieu of medication or most definitely not as the first line. If patients, sorry, parents uh, uh, and patients want to uh, go down those paths, I, I, don't, I don't think it's unreasonable. Um, now, when it comes to anxiety disorders, uh, yeah, there are many times where, depending on the severity of the symptoms, uh, where I would recommend uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, CBT uh, uh, has been shown uh, to be equally effective uh, to medications. Uh, and in the long run, I think uh, is actually more effective, uh, not in that they provide a better response, uh, but what studies have shown and what you can see clinically is that meds uh, and CBT are equally effective in treating anxiety. Uh, However, when you stop the medication, as I said earlier, anxiety disorders are chronic and many times the anxiety will come back. With CBT, uh, patients, it takes them longer, frankly, for those symptoms to come back. So they sustain their response to CBT longer than they do to medications. Uh, and studies have actually shown that with CBT, uh, you are literally causing changes in your brain uh, that are similar uh, to what medications do. So it's not just learning how to manage better, 
you are literally causing changes in how your brain is firing or functioning uh, that correlates with what medications do. Uh, so again, that that is a very powerful treatment and one that I definitely recommend, uh, uh, whether by itself, before medications, or even with medications. That's a very helpful answer. I know for, for many of us parents and educators, do you recommend giving weekends or summers off medication? Um, so I think this question is specifically directed to ADHD medications because the answer for the others would be no, uh, because again, uh, antidepressants, anti-anxiety medicines, uh, uh, mood stabilizers, they can take time to work. Uh, you want to maintain their efficacy. If you come off, symptoms recur. Now you can got to wait weeks for it to, to, to potentially work. Uh, with stimulants, um, you know, it, um, ADHD is always there. Um, and, uh, so, um, treating it seven days a week is absolutely reasonable. Uh, like any other condition, uh, ADHD is a spectrum. Uh, and by that, what I mean, there are patients who are more severely impaired and those who are less, uh, and can patients uh, come off of medications on the weekend summers and do uh, well, uh, even with their ADHD symptoms? Sure. Uh, you know, on the milder end of the ADHD spectrum. Uh, and then when they go back on their medication, when school starts or they go back to work, um, the response again is immediate. So I don't think it's unreasonable uh, with stimulant medications to come on and off. And uh, really, I, I tend to let families make that decision. Can I ask, can I tag a question on to that though? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you ever heard personally from children who... Um, somehow internalize the change and notice, you know, whether or not how it's affecting them, um, if they're able to recognize how it affects the people that they're with, whether or not they're getting reprimanded more, and whether or not that affects their self-esteem. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, I mean, I, I, I have patients of mine who uh, um, they simply prefer to stay on their medication seven days a week. Uh, they'll describe to me, uh, I simply do better. Uh, and that can be from um, feeling calmer, less impulsive, and not only just impulsive in uh, blurting out answers or you know running out into the street after a ball, but uh, less impulsive in a mood uh, uh, fashion, that they're less irritable, that their fuse is longer. Uh, uh, as well as also there's just that they're more, um, uh, more efficient, better able at, you know, completing household chores, et, et cetera. Uh, and so, uh, um, I've most definitely had patients who've, who've told me that, uh, you know, but other patients again, uh, don't like how they feel on the medications. They want to be off of it or, you know, in terms of uh, one of the parts of your question, no, they're not aware <laughs> of how their symptoms uh, affect others uh, and, 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 and also aren't aware necessarily of how that feedback that they're getting may be negatively affecting them in terms of getting in trouble or, or getting, you know, reprimanded. Yeah. yeah. Right. So thank you very much. How do stimulant medications affect someone with ADHD and sensory processing disorder? Uh, well, that's a tough question in that there isn't a, a good uh, blanket answer to it. Uh, uh, in, in all honesty, uh, there's a very good chance that um, that patient can do quite well on ADHD medications and that you won't get an, any sort of exacerbation of their sensory processing disorder. Um, is it possible uh, that you could uh, see some worsening of those symptoms, you know, a heightened sensitivity? It, it is possible, uh, uh, but I would not uh, 
uh, allow it to dissuade me from trying a, a trial of a medication, uh, and I'm thinking of a stimulant, uh, if the ADHD symptoms are clearly causing, you know, uh, functional interference. I have a question. Do you find that anxiety and ADHD present similarly in young children? You know, that's a good question. It's a tough one. Um, um, There's definitely an overlap uh, for some patients. uh, uh, And, you know, what, what, uh, so, Yes and no. <laughs> uh, uh, ADHD, um, you know, again, the core symptoms are inattention, hyperactivity, daydreaming, restlessness, etc. Now, anxiety, depending on the types of anxiety that you're talking about, can it interfere with your attention? Sure, it can. And so there, there can be that interplay. Um, but the other thing that you also see, sometimes kids with ADHD can, again, have that short fuse, be irritable, right? Uh, maybe a little explosive. But that can also be driven by anxiety, okay? And if you're sort of anxious or, or say you're obsessive and someone's uh, interfering with your obsession, you might sort of, you know, get, get a little angry, right? And so, so there, there's definitely an interplay that can occur there. Um, I hope I answered your question. You, you did. And uh, like on top of that, at what point do you think if a parent sus- suspects their child might have ADHD or anxiety, at what point do you usually recommend looking into assessment and treatment options? Um, well, you know, again, if it's interfering, then you most definitely should look into assessment, uh, whether that be, you know, psychological testing, educational assessment, right, rule out learning disabilities, but also look at, or learning differences, but also look at, uh, um, you know, the possibility of ADHD symptoms. Um, and, you know, typically, again, uh, well, typically many, many times, uh, you know, this can be as young as uh, six, seven years of age. Um, that other times, if the symptoms are more mild, you can see uh, patients uh, not present until they're, you know, later elementary or early middle school. Uh, you know, it's a, the common entry points, just using ADHD as an example, uh, you know, you have the sort of pre-kindergarten, those are the really hyperactive kids who are, you know, sort of disruptive. Then the others who may be making until about third grade. And now again, uh, in third grade, you know, the academic demands begin to increase a bit and children start to sort of falter. Middle school, you have now six, seven teachers. How are you going to stay organized, keep up with your work? High school, you know, some make it all the way to college uh, before they're diagnosed. Question, does reducing or eliminating food dyes or sugar have any clinically significant benefit in treating ADHD? Yeah, um, unfortunately, that has not been my experience uh, that that's necessarily the case, uh, uh, at least not in a large percentage of patients. If it is, it might be in a very small uh, percentage of patients. It's uh, uh, no, no, nobody has asked uh, the CBD question tonight, uh, but I think it's sort of in that similar sort of vein. And, and what I'm saying by that is if you think that that might be an issue, uh, or you think CBD could possibly work for some set of symptoms, do a study. And by that, what I mean is eliminate the dye and see if there's clearly a change. And if so, fantastic. You continue to eliminate it. If there isn't, okay, that's fine. Move on. Likewise with CBD. Uh, you know, you have your set of symptoms that you're trying to treat. There simply aren't enough studies out there to really warrant this, but look safe, do a study. These are the symptoms I want to see improve. If they do, great. I'm going to continue it. If they don't, I'm going to stop it. So that's the way I tend to think about these things is, you know, as long as it's not something harmful, 
do a study. This is what I want to see improve. If it does, fantastic. If it doesn't, scratch it off the list. Here's a good one. For a parent who is on the fence about medicating their child or very hesitant to go that route, how do you explain to the parents the benefits of being medicated in order to ease their concerns, worries about side effects or losing their child's personality? You know, I I think really um, what one has to be thinking about, um, naturally there's a concern about medications, there's a concern about side effects, long-term effects, though there really don't appear to be any negative long-term effects, uh, particularly as you're thinking of stimulants, um, is the impact. uh, So what I try and get parents to think about is the impact of the symptoms on their child's functioning. Uh, what you don't want to see, obviously, is that your child uh, becomes uh, down on themselves or demoralized. You know, I'm stupid. I can't do it. I'm always the last one to finish. Uh, or the other uh, sort of behavioral issue, I'm always in trouble. You know, I'm no good. Uh, and if, you, you know, if you're seeing any of that sort of, uh, those sort of complaints, uh, then, then, then I think you know your level of concern should rise really more towards that. We really need to do something treatment-wise, and you know I'm, I'm going to just have to sort of take that leap uh, uh, and you know, let go of some of my worries about the you know, possible side effects. Okay, we've got two more. The first one is: Do you recommend taking vitamin supplements with or without medication for ADHD? Um, I don't think they hurt. I can't say that I recommend them uh, uh, in terms of that there's uh, some uh, improvement in the response to medication or, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I, again, I, yeah, I think that's a, a safe thing. I just uh, can't say that I think it helps or hurts. Thank you. For a parent who has heard only negative information about ADHD medication, what would you recommend they read to get reliable information? Oh, uh, that's a great question. Uh, and there's actually, uh, uh, not one that to, uh, commonly recommend books and, uh, it's either Tom Willens or Tim Spencer. Uh, I can't remember now which one of them wrote the book. They're out of mass general hospital. There's actually a, a, a primer on, uh, uh, medications for your child. Uh, and it really goes through in much more detail than I did tonight. Um, and let's see if I, if you want to ask another question while I'm looking this up, I can tell you. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Okay. There was one last question. And this one is for a child that has both an ADHD plus expressive receptive language processing disorder. Do you feel that the non-stimulant drugs can actually cause more of a processing delay? I can't say that. Not necessarily. No, I, that, that's a, um, I don't, No, I can't say that I do necessarily. Okay. Uh, Well, while you're pulling that up, I just, I'd really like to take a moment to thank all of you who um, joined us this evening and put questions into the chat because um, by your generous um, sharing, it, it really helped prompt other people to ask other questions. And I think that sometimes even when we don't ask a question, just by your asking it, it really does speak to so many of us who are signed on here tonight. So thank you to those of you that um, that showed up and asked questions. And thank you to those of you um, who attended and, and, and just listened so generously. 
for some reason, I'm not finding it, but to that parent who asked that question, uh, the, the author is either Tim uh, Willens, W-I-L-E-N-S, or Tom Spencer, uh, and they're uh, out of the Mass General Hospital and actually wrote a really uh, good book, uh, as I said earlier, sort of medication treatment in children and, and very detailed and thorough. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's a good resource if you want something to look up. This was an amazing hour. Thank you so much for lending yourself to, to the parish school community, the Caruth Center, our Unbabbled podcast. And um, we're just, we're, we're so grateful that you were here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having um, uh, um, everyone. Uh, stay safe, stay healthy. Absolutely. For those of you tuning in tonight, we hope that you will tune in again. We have um, upcoming free adult education webinars and Q and A's um, scheduled almost every month. So please stay tuned for those and good night. Thank you for listening to the Unbabbled podcast. For more information on today's episode, please see our episode description. For more information on the parish school, visit parishschool.org. If you're not already, don't forget to subscribe to the Unbabbled podcast on your app of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, be sure to leave a rating and review. A special thank you to Stig Daniels, Amanda Arnold, and Stella Limwell for all their hard work behind the scenes. Thanks again for listening.